folks. Welcome back to the Colorado Switchblade. I'm your host, as always, Jason Van Tatenhove. Going into the week of Thanksgiving. Man, I am so glad to be done just covering school board elections for a little bit. I'm sure I'll have to do it once things kick back up, but it was it I I relish the times I don't have to do it. Anyway, so today I thought we would get back to something that's near and dear to my heart, something I talk about on on mainstream media all the time, and that's the power of storytelling, which I think is just so, so important to our future and getting to a better place. I've said it many times before. I'll continue to say it. This all starts and ends with storytelling. We are a species that is just hardwired for storytelling. So I thought I'd bring on my old friend, Michael Kilman, who uh, I've known for several years now. I've interviewed him before on the podcast. You can go back and find that. I'll try to put a link up in the show notes, the original one. But Michael Kilman is an anthropologist who focuses on media and storytelling. He writes fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. He's the author of Build Better Worlds, an introduction to anthropology for game designers, fiction writers, and filmmakers. He's the author of the sci-fi series, The Chronicles of the Great Migration. In 2021, he gave a TED Talk called Anthropology, Our Imagination, and How to Understand Difference. He's been featured on several podcasts, YouTube channels, and loves to read poetry at open mic sessions. When he isn't working on a creative project, you can find him cycling, studying Eastern philosophy, and traveling to other worlds through linguistic portals. And um, he's an adjunct professor. He teaches anthropology uh, in the Denver area, but thought it would be a, a great opportunity to just sit and rap about some storytelling, because that's something I, I mean, I do it every day. And uh, yeah, so we're going to start with that. I do have a special holiday event coming up. It will be an author's evening with Jason Van Tatenhove, of kind of an author's dinner. Um, it's going to be happening on Saturday, December 16th. I figured that would be kind of before. It's still kind of a holiday thing, but before everyone gets traveling with their family and whatnot. But it'll be up here in magical Estes Park, Colorado, the uh, the place where The Shining was first dreamt up by Stephen King. Um, and uh, there's only going to be about 50 tickets available, and they're already selling. So if there's something you're interested in doing, I suggest you get your tickets uh, more quickly, but here's the information about it. An author's dinner with Jason Van Tatenhove, a tapestry of storytelling and insight. Amid the festive air that preludes the holidays, we offer an exclusive invitation to dine with Jason Van Tatenhove, an author whose pen charts the confluence of art, journalistic acumen, and the uncompromising pursuit of truth. Join us at Mother's Cafe, which is a place right near the, it, it is the restaurant at the golf course, the, um, 18-hole golf course here in Estes Park. It's just gorgeous out there. Join us at Mother's Cafe for a celebratory evening that promises more than just a dinner. It's a foray into a life lived audaciously against the grain. Literary alchemy. From the thrones of violent political extremism to the echoes of supernatural fiction, Jason's readings provides a gateway to alternative realities and introspections, punctuated by his legacy tied to the abstract expressionist movement. 
An unconventional journey, Jason's eclectic experiences frame a story of defiance and discovery from university classrooms to expansive education of life that fosters his distinctive voice. Versatile wordsmith with bylines and prominent publications in the creation of the Colorado Switchblade, Jason stands at the vanguard of combating misinformation with the sharpness of a well-honed blade. This is weird. I'm not, I'm going to, I'm not going to continue reading that. Um, I'll do this part. As a frequent commenter on platforms like MSNBC and CNN, Jason's insights resonate with the nas- with a national audience, bringing the weight of his experience to bear on crucial socio-political dialogues. So again, what this is, without all the fancy words, is just a dinner with me. I'm going to be reading selections from all my books, um, including the one I'm working on now, The Propagandist Daughters. Um, and uh, the... the um, it's uh, attendance is capped at 50 to ensure it's like an intimate, memorable experience for all our guests. Um, and you're going to get uh, just an amazing dinner out of it. Um, it is uh, it, it's going to be what? Where's the dinner? It's it's like quail. Culinary elegance. Savor a special menu of honey roasted quail over Turkish pilaf. And sauteed winter greens. Um, drinks are included in the dinner, uh, not alcoholic drinks. There will be an open bar for those who want to, you know, take more of a Hunter S. Thompson approach to the dinner. Um, but that's a, a, you know, you'll have to pay extra for that. Um, I will have, I just ordered in like a case of each one of my books. Um, and uh, hopefully the hardcovers of the new release of uh, um Colorado's chance the firewalker will be in by then um which they should be I think they're going to be in next week everything else gets in today actually I'm I'm super excited to it's always a cool experience to to you know pop open that that box that they send you with you know your author's copies of a new book and just you know flipping through the pages and you smell that book new book smell and just you're holding in something that's taken you years sometimes to create um, you know, every little detail of, and it just, it, it's a great experience to do. So I'm looking forward to that today anyway. Um, yeah. So the, the ticket prices are at 50 bucks. Um, that includes a full meal and uh, non-alcoholic beverages with the proceeds contributing to a holiday celebration for Jason's daughters as, uh, as I embark on a poignant chapter following the recent loss of my wife and writing collaborator of three decades. Um, it's just a way to help me fund my holidays. I'm just getting more sophisticated with my wording on that because <laughs> every year I've got to figure out a way to fund Christmas for uh, teenage and, and grown daughters and granddaughters. Um, so yeah, it'll, it'll be Saturday, the 16th, 7 PM. You can find the event on Facebook. Um, I think you just search my name on events. Um Otherwise, I did put a post up about it on the Switchblade um, a couple of days ago, and you can find it there. It's an, it'll be the next post up. Um, so, yeah, if that's something that interests you, going up to the mountains for uh, a weekend getaway and having dinner with me reading from books, there'll be a question and answer session where you can ask me what you want, um, and I'll answer as truthfully as I can, honestly, I guess. Um and uh, then afterwards, I'll be signing books. If you have your own books already, you can bring them and I'll sign them for you. Or um, if you need some copies, I will have copies available. 
And uh, yeah, so we'll be going from there. So again, Saturday, 16th, 7 p.m. at Mother's Cafe, which is located at 1480 Golf Course Road in Estes Park, Colorado. And if you've never been to Estes, like it, it literally is the gateway to Rocky Mountain National Park. Um, we have millions of people who come through here um, throughout the year um, just because it's just one of the most beautiful places on earth. And uh, here's a fun little thing you can do for the holidays before you get into that family holiday grind where everyone's just grumpy and angry. Can't stand Uncle Bob anymore. So, uh, yeah. All right, folks, we're going to got one more commercial to do, and then we're going to get straight to the interview with Michael Kilman, author, professor of anthropology, TED Talker, and just buddy of mine. So. Have you ever visited the breathtaking landscapes of Estes Park, Colorado, and wished your adventure didn't have to end? Now you can continue the journey with Colorado's chance, The Firewalker, a thrilling supernatural adventure set right in Estes Park, Rocky Mountain National Park, and Aspen. Follow the story of Chance Van Horn, a seasoned journalist, as he delves into mysterious occurrences at the Summit Hotel navigating through a labyrinth of danger, enigmatic symbols, and dark secrets. And join Summer and Winter, his adventurous nieces, as they uncover hidden realms and mystical libraries, all set against the stunning backdrop of Colorado's Rockies. Whether you've visited Estes Park, call it home, or have yet to experience its wonders, this novel brings the magic of the mountains to life, weaving a tale of suspense, mystery, and unbreakable bonds of family. So are you ready to dive back into the beauty of Colorado and embark on an unforgettable supernatural adventure? Grab your copy of Colorado's Chance, The Firewalker, today, available on Amazon.com. Don't miss out on this journey of mystery, resilience, and the magic of the supernatural, crafted by Estes Park's own Jason Van Tatenhove. All right, folks. Now we're going to jump into the interview for today. Again, Michael Kilman. You can catch him. He did a, a TED Talk. I mean, he's got a bunch of stuff on YouTube. Um, yeah. Hope you enjoy it. All right, folks. Welcome back to the Colorado Switchblade. Today we have on a returning guest. Michael Kilman is a fellow author. Um, he's also your adjunct professor. Yeah, adjunct professor uh, at CU Denver and then some community colleges. And, you know, I mean, it's off and on. It, that's yeah. the way the adjunct role goes, right? I mean, but uh, but I teach anthropology. Okay. Yeah, and you actually wrote a textbook that that is uh, being used in different universities on world building uh, using anthropology. So uh, I thought it'd be good just to not talk about school board elections. And, and you know, I talk so much about the power of storytelling to change culture. And, you know, you're implementing the study of culture um, into some of your work. So I thought it'd be just a, a good time to have a conversation about that. So for, for my newer audience that maybe didn't hear our first interview, and I'll link to that in the show notes so that you guys can catch up if you want. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you got going on. And uh, yeah, just, just introduce yourself. Yeah. So 
you know, I, I do a lot of things. I, I write uh, novels. I got some sci-fi novels. I'm working on a horror novel that I'm wrapping up uh, by the end of the year. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of what I do is spend time working with people and getting to think about the power of diversity, the power of storytelling. Um, and, uh, you know, you mentioned my book, it's called Build Better Worlds, an introduction to anthropology for game designers, fiction writers, and filmmakers. And I co-wrote that with a wonderful friend of mine, brilliant friend of mine uh, named Kira Wellstrom. Um, and the purpose of this book initially was we wanted to give people the opportunity to tell better stories by understanding how cultural systems work, right? Because I do fundamentally believe in the power of storytelling. And my graduate research um, was on the Romero Theater Troupe, which is, which is a social justice theater troupe based out of Denver, Colorado. Uh, there's a, if you just uh, look it up, um, you can look up romerotroupe.org uh, if you're curious about them. What they essentially do is they use storytelling uh, by community members on the stage to uh, address social issues within the Denver community. And if you're really curious also, I did a film of, of them called Unbound Story of the Remote Theater Troupe. Anyone can watch it for free on YouTube. It's like an hour and 15 minutes. It's not a terribly long documentary. Um, and it really just highlights what they do and how they use the power of story to build community connections. Um, and then they use that as kind of a platform for organizing and activism and addressing things. And it's really open to anyone who wants to participate. Now, of course, you're not going to see any like real hard conservatives at this storytelling event because, you know, we covered everything from undocumented individual stories to uh, an individual uh, named um, Alex Landau, who experienced police brutality firsthand and is now working uh, with, you know, through community organizations to address issues um, and hold police accountable. Uh, we worked with someone whose house literally collapsed um, because the fracking industry uh, just dug right below our house and it fell into a sinkhole. And, you know, the insurance company called that an act of God or, you know, all kinds. And so environmental justice issues, they look at labor rights issues and unions and all kinds of stuff. And that really got me set off in a direction to um, really examine what does storytelling people, storytelling doing to people. So that was my graduate research and my master's uh, thesis uh, looked at how do they impact the community versus 24-hour news systems, right? Versus these corporatized uh, media systems that uh, are entirely for profit, that they, you know, their concern is about making money, not about quality journalism anymore. So, so that's a lot of what I did. And, and that experience, I mean, it, I mean, I, I did that between 2012 and 2014 it was like, I spent all this time with them, did the film, and then the film came out April of 2014. So this is almost 10 years ago now, which is crazy to think. But since then, I've been, you know, writing stories, um, you know, and, and I've been, I've been teaching mostly. And, um, and that's, you know, kind of like really the very, a very long way of how I got into writing this book on world building. Because, you know, when Tr Trump won the election in 2016, I had to approach teaching a class on diversity completely different. And I, and I didn't really know how to do that just yet. And so I spent uh, several years kind of experimenting with different met methods like student-led classrooms. And, but what I would run into time and again was students just 
sometimes not even wanting to talk to each other, that, you know, there would be arguments and the heated arguments in the class because, you know, now we've got people who are conservative and, and you know, liberal spectrums and all, all areas in between. And, you know, of course, I generally teaches the classes that no one wants to take, right? <laughs> they teach, I teach the classes that are like, you have to take this diversity class to graduate college. And like, you know, so most people don't- Everyone's angry it. when they get in the door. Yeah, everyone, everyone's pissed. Why do I have to take this bullshit requirement class, you know? So, so, so absolutely, yeah. They don't even want to have a conversation. So, you know, I was talking to my friend, friend Kira about this, and then we were also talking about how, you know, you see the same fantasy worlds over and over again. The same, it's 17th, 16th, 17th century Europe style fantasy worlds over and over and over again, right? I mean, there's exceptions out there with really great authors. But generally speaking, a lot of people tell the same stories over and over again. Very like Joseph Campbell based. Yeah, I mean, kind which, of based on Tolkien and Campbell. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's so they, the formula. And we're seeing it now in 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 speculative fiction in in these dystopian novels where it's just the 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 Hunger Games model which is just being reused. Exactly, exactly. So we wanted to, you know, so we were talking about this and one day we were sitting around, I think we had just seen a Marvel movie or something and you know, we're both nerds about the Marvel movies. But they're fun, we enjoy them. We, I know they're not like the super most, you know, like progressive inspirational fiction ever but they're fun right so we're, yeah, we're sitting around crunch on a saturday morning it just kind of brings you back to the day you know exactly exactly i grew up watching x-men and spider-man every saturday morning after soccer practice right so so we're sitting around talking about this and we're kind of lamenting on how there's such a lack of knowledge about how culture works and diversity within um within you know a lot of the mainstream media systems and this was like 2018, we started this conversation. Well, you know, I kind of, I, I got like an email and this happens to every professor, by the way, where you get, you know, a, a textbook company reach out and say, would you like to put your ideas in textbook form? And I thought, yeah, maybe I would, right? So I reached out to Kira and I said, this person's like, you know, asking if us, if we want to, uh, you know, introduce some book. And that book ultimately became the Build Better Worlds. Um, and the book is, you know, uh, the book is essentially just like, how can we introduce people to how culture works? How do cultural systems work uh, so that they can write better, more holistic, more realistic fiction, right? And, you know, and so now they can take, you know, this this cultural knowledge that you learn. And it's, it's not really much different from taking an intro to cultural anthropology class. But then, you know, it's filled with a whole bunch of nerdy references and suggestions for writing and those kinds of things, too. Um, so, I, you know, we wrote this book um, and all this was happening during the pandemic. And then, you know, in uh, 2020, we released our first version of the book. Um, and um, uh, and I started implementing it in class. And, and I tried it a couple of different ways to where first I was just having individuals build fictional worlds all throughout the term. So instead of learning diversity, like getting it like, okay, now we're going to read this article about diversity and discuss it, ladies and gentlemen. So, you know, instead of, instead of doing that, they build a fictional world. And, and it, it was too much though, I found for them to build a fictional world by themselves in a 16 week course. It's just, it was a lot. And, you know, sometimes summer courses, eight weeks, even worse. Right. So what I started doing is putting them in groups. And I found this was really a 
effective for two reasons. One, it forced them to compromise and understand and have conversations with each other on, you know, their own perspectives and backgrounds and diversity. Um, and, and then two, you know, they had a lot of fun, a lot more fun doing it because it wasn't so stressful. It wasn't every week they had to produce some very labor intensive uh, piece. So now they do essentially three projects throughout the term. And in the end of the term, they present their fictional worlds. And, and, you know, and then between them reading the book and working together, we, of course, do more traditional discussions of diversity and stuff. But now I also bring in a lot of like nerdy science fiction and fantasy references and, you know, and all kinds of stuff. And I, and I have found that, you know, of course, it's not everybody's cup of tea still. You're never going to please every student, just like you're never going to please every fan, right? But I found that the conversations were far more productive. There was a lot less anger in the classroom, all because I approached this model of teaching diversity with storytelling. And, and getting them to, to use their creativity. And I really, I mean, it's, you know, you'd have to talk to students who took the class, but like, I really do feel like a lot of the lessons stick with them more because they've had to take those ideas and then actualize them into something that they created. So, so that's, that's kind of like an intro to, to what I essentially have been working on and doing. And then of course, I've got my own fiction and poetry and other stuff, but generally speaking, I try to work with with people and get them to think about, you know, what are the benefits of storytelling? What are the benefits of diversity? You know, because, you know, the, I mean, humans are brilliant together. We're not so great individually. We, we, we kind of mess a lot of stuff up when we focus on the individual. Yeah. We're really we work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But when we focus on community, when we focus on working together and we do that creatively, whether that's through storytelling or music or paintings or whatever, you know, whatever we're doing, when we do those things together collaboratively, something comes out of us that really, I think, I really believe at this point in my life that stories are how we save the world. Yeah. And, and so for a little background history on, on how Michael and I know each other, um, you know, I, I, we were in some sort of community together um, online, but then like I, we, we became friends and we really didn't know each other, but you started posting things that just resonated with me about storytelling and, and some of the things you were doing in class. And, and what really, for me, it was, it was a validating thing because a lot of the, the concepts you're talking about with your students in class are things that I kind of came around to just through my experience of like producing propaganda for, you know, the alt-right and just my, my, you know, all the talks that I do all over the country now, it, it's always, I always talk about storytelling, how, how, where we've gotten as a culture, as a society, you know, it all starts and ends with storytelling and, you know, yeah. where we are now, I just, I just did a pre-interview with an NBC affiliate this afternoon where I was talking about, you know, they're asking about how we got to where we are now. And really, it's, it comes from the, the storytelling that was happening five, 10 years ago that yeah. has now taken seed and has been normalized and is, is now different. And it's not that the storytelling is all that great, but I mean, I've just, I've always been a storyteller, whether that's through visual art or, or media or, you know, radio shows um, and now, you know, novels and articles and whatnot. Um, you know, I think it is, it, it, yes, we need the triage of legal action to kind of get to a better place than where we are now. But in order to really look at 
where we are now as a country we have to go back and look at the storytelling that has gotten us to where we are now because it is just such it's the heartbeat of everything we yeah. as a species <clears throat> relate to one another relate to the world through to religion to to you know moral lessons ethical questions through storytelling it's just how we're hardwired and um you know i i i dropped out of every university i went to but you know i it seems to be a lot of the conclusions that i have come up with um are very similar to what you're you've been developing and teaching um and uh you know i gotta say i my my hope in the future is the young creatives of of today that are being formed today they're being molded or, or you know just those seeds are being planted in fertile fields um that you know it's the youth of today that gives me more hope than anything yeah uh, yeah but you know if we look back to to star trek in the 60s and just so it's such a good case study because we have technology that's being developed i mean there's just an article that came out earlier today about nasa talking about this this warp bubble drive um mm -hmm. you know we we have cell phones we have tablets we 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 have you know interracial kisses now on tv but that all started back in the late 60s with gene roddenberry and the crew of star trek you know that yeah. for me was such an uh, you know, just an enlightenment that, wow, you can really change the world with a good story and, and oh, yeah. the right messages. Um, you know, how how do you think storytelling is going to affect the future moving forward? Do you think that um, it can be um, used to kind of counteract as an inoculation some of the, the division and hatred we're seeing now? Yeah, you know, I think it already is. I think a lot of what we're seeing now, uh, you know, is when we, we talk about uh, it, we're talking about contrasting narratives, right? So we're seeing we're seeing people and yet a lot of people are getting radicalized uh, and that is an issue. And, and it is important to note that like that's storytelling, too. Right. Um, and, you know, we sometimes call this an anthropology, the imagined past that, you know, the way we tell history we're using storytelling, we're using our imagination because we can't be there. And, you know, we have to clean up the narrative a great deal. It's very hard to detail the complexity of history for the general public, right? Because the general public just doesn't, I mean, A, they don't have the time. You know, if you're, you're working a 40 hour a week, I mean, that's like the minimum. These yeah, if you're lucky to just people. be working for 40 hours at one job. Right. Then then you don't have a whole lot of time to really go and explore other ideas or other possibilities or contrasting narratives. Right. And so, you know, a lot a lot of what's been going on in the last 20, 30 years is we've seen increased complexity of these historical narratives. So, wait, hey, wait a second. What about the Native American experience? What about the African-American experience? What about the Chinese-American experience? Like, what are these other pieces of history that we're not missing? And of course, you see, you know, much longer than that, even uh, individuals come along like Howard Zinn, who's like, let's tell a better story. Let's tell a truer story. Yeah. And what I mean by truer is not like we're not talking about like, oh, it was it was absolutely true. A lot of the things that the, these people we have told forever in history, these stories are true, too. But it's incomplete. A lot of history is incomplete truth. And in fact, I would go so far as to say that all of history is incomplete truth because every country and every culture picks a certain narratives and, well, and they, they pick, by the winners. 
Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. And, and I would say that's that's mostly true. I, there's yeah, always I mean, contrasting narratives popping up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. But but it is but it's it's very true that, you know, the the Orwellian maxim, you know, he who controls the uh, the present controls the past and he who controls the past controls the future. That's very true in that the way we frame things matters. And I always tell students, if your history is happy and comfortable and full of triumph and wonder, you're not hearing history. You're hearing propaganda because there is no, yeah, yeah. There's no culture, no nation on this planet that does not have really shitty things they've done in the past, right? Not a single one. And if we really want to move forward as a species, we have to tell more truths and we have to let more people tell their stories. And that was what I really learned about the Romero troop because they do take like a Howard Zinnian approach to storytelling. They're saying, don't just tell the story of the big important faces and names, tell the story of the little guy, tell the story of your neighbor who went through this terrible ordeal because you know, we have a system that really does have significant winners and losers, right? I mean, we have a system that was set up to benefit certain groups of people, right? Typically people of European descent. And and that's because, and, and that's not, I mean, if you had a situation where it was, let's say, India that had rose to power and spread across the world and done colonialism, they would have set up a system that was then, you know, just as domineering. I mean, because you can look at any empire from any part of the world in any part of history, and they set up similar systems that benefit them and disenfranchise the others. You can look at that the Mongol Empire, you can look at the Roman Empire, you look at the Islamic Empire, it, you can look at the Greeks or the, the Rome, any, anywhere, right? You can look at any of these empires, they all do the same thing. But so, but the question is, do we want to continue that path? And I think, I well, think, I, that, think I, I think it coincides with good writing. You know, I know as I've evolved in in my being a writer, a lot of times I'll ask myself as I'm approaching a scene that I'm putting together, like who would be the most interesting character to to tell this scene from that point of view? And it's usually not the hero necessarily, but the person who is having the the biggest emotional um, experience or, you know, going through the most tends to be... Who I will go to because it's just more engaging and it 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 it's not just a Joseph Campbell hero story. Well, yeah, and even the Joseph Campbell hero stories like Star Wars, what are those about? They're not about the the magnificence of the Empire. They're right. about a rebellion, a rebellion that fucks shit up. Right. Yeah. It's like, and of course, we get wonderful stories like Andor that really show us oh, yeah. the, the very difficult, complex nature of being a rebellion. And, and this is one of the reasons I have so much hope for the future, the stories that we are telling now are more complex, more complicated in our, even in our mainstream media than they have ever been. I mean, I'm sure you've gone back like I have, you know, being an elder, I'm an elder millennial, you're Gen X, correct? Yeah. 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 So, so I, I've gone back as an elder millennial and I've rewatched a lot of those old cartoons from when I was a kid. And I'm like, my God, was I just so stupid that I didn't notice that every single episode was the same? Like, what, what is the complexity of the characters here? There's, there's like almost nothing. Now, there are, of course, like 
you know, a few shining examples of complex storytelling, you know, throughout the 70s and 80s and, and 90s. But it's not really until the 2000s that we started incorporating other perspectives that the stories start getting really interesting and really unique. And we start seeing a lot more of those narratives that show that, like, you know, people are not just hero or evil. We're not, you know, you don't, I mean, I, the best thing I can think of, there was this like crossover episode of Ninja Turtles that came out in like the late, like the, 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 the 2008 or 2009 or something. And it was a film and it was, it was hilarious because they took the, the, the Ninja Turtles from the eighties and they contrasted them against the Ninja Turtles from the two thousands. And, you know, where Shredder was kind of like a, a, a kind of just like an idiot in the eighties. Right. And then they show like how much more dark and sinister and fascist Shredder had become. Um, well, but, by the 2000s. Say, like I came <laughs> from the comic book, which was more of an adult oriented storyline. Um, yeah, so yeah. I remember like the Nickelodeon Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That, that was that was blasphemy, uh, you know, because my Ninja Turtles, oh, yeah, they swore and they they talked about real things. And, you know, it, it, so I think maybe it got back to that. But what do you think did that? What, what do you think was the, the, the change there in the, the 2000s where we saw this more? complex story uh dynamic start to manifest yeah so in, in media is one of my areas of specialty in anthropology so i spent a lot of time thinking about stuff and there's a number of things that were going on i mean a in the 1990s you get the internet and while the internet can can be a whole mixed bag as we all know like you can you can further radicalize people by the time we get to a situation where we have social media forming in the, the early 2000s, we have suddenly an opportunity that is not available on any traditional media system before. And that is everyone can speak up. Yeah. And of course, that has consequences too, right? It's not all you know rainbows and flowers and all that kind of stuff. Like everyone can speak up means literally everyone, like yeah, for better or worse. Swastikas and yeah. Right. Right. So, you know, you didn't realize that maybe your neighbor next door was a was a was a fascist like you don't you you know, now you suddenly have the opportunity to see like, you know, what people are really saying. And then, of course, there's all kinds of tools as you speak on people get radicalized by these systems as well. But the, but if you think about it, you know, there were so many gatekeepers all the way until the early 2000s for media, for the kinds of narratives, for the kinds of storytelling. And in addition to that, we also have a new arena of publishing too, and where you can suddenly, you know, beginning, I think 2004, 2005, people can self-publish their stuff. It doesn't uh, guarantee yeah. you're going to make anything, but, but all of a sudden our culture was flooded with, and not just our culture, like the world was flooded with narratives from all over the place. And I think a lot of what's been going on in the last 20 years is our brains are exploding over this. We don't know how to handle all this information. And it's why things get, can get so wacky on the internet, why it's such a clusterfuck. Because, and I wrote, a, I wrote an article about this on my own website. Um, it was like, so how, why social media is a dumpster fire or something. And it, what's important to understand is like, okay, everybody has different sets of knowledge that they begin with, and they're all meeting in the same place, and they all have different intentions for why they use social media. And and so what you're getting is like people and so there are certain people who are ready to change and there are certain people who are, are not and will never be ready to change. Right. And so what you're getting is all of these people are suddenly bombarded by all these perspectives all over the place. And they don't like 
quite frankly, none of us know how to handle it. In a way, like social media was like a human puberty. It, it's yeah. kind of like- Growing pains. Yeah, it's growing pains. We had to, we went from being children to having these kind of narrow, more narrow tribalistic perspectives to suddenly we're now going through a kind of human puberty of sorts. And we have all the raging hormones and the backlash and all that stuff, right? Yeah, it's a right? Good yeah. And, and, and in a lot of ways, like a, a lot of what's going on with Zoomers is that they're doing two adolescences at once. And I, and I think that's a lot of what's going on with the mental health crisis. And, and of course, that's, that's my opinion. But, you know, I, I do think that I, you know, if you look at the history of media, whatever form of media we're, tell, we're, we're talking about, most often, the first thing media was used for, whether it be photography or it be, you know, actually being able to record voices or video or whatever, was pornography. Like it's, it's all, it all starts first with like the most like depraved things that humans will do. And then you gradually see it's the quality of that media begin to go up. And I think, you know, in another decade or two, the internet is going to look very differently. You know, we're going to have different kind of systems. And, and I don't know what to, to tell you what that's going to look like because the technological change is happening so fast. I think it's hard for anyone to really predict exactly what's going on. Um, and there might be people out there who have a better idea than I do. But, but I do think, I think that what's been happening is in the last 20 years, the complexity of our storytelling is increasing. And that complexity is not lost on the younger generations. The older generations, it scares the shit out of them. Right. It's, it's, you know, especially if you're the older generation that happened to be in power for a very long time, you know, for centuries, we're talking about, right. The, you know, the white and European. Now suddenly, well, that's all in play. I don't know if that's going to continue. And it's right. not gonna, exactly. That's just the way the world works. Yeah. And, and power changes, changes all the time. Right. And, and so you have these, but, but now you have these new avenues of communication we've never had before. And the other reason I'm hopeful and I think this is, a, again, a product of about 20 years of this going on. You know, now we have conversations all the time about things like bias. Now, there was always, you know, trailblazers in human history who would talk about bias and they'd be very wise, but they were the very, very small minority, like less than 1%. But now you have whole groups of people beginning to talk about bias and respect and representation and working together. And, you know, and of course, part of this adolescence through social media and stuff is that we fractured our communities um, because now we're spending so much time online. But now you are seeing, and I think the pandemic was a huge wake up call for a lot of people because they're realizing you can't just live online 24 hours a day. You've got to go out into the world and do stuff. And I, I think, I think it's going to take a couple of decades, but I think you're going to see a huge, I, I actually think that you know, assuming we don't destroy ourselves with climate change or something, you know, or, or other very things. Real possibility at this point. Yeah, right. Very real possibility. If we get our shit together, I think we could, by the end of the century, have a golden age of humanity. And I, and I do think that storytelling is at the core of that. Yeah, I think we either need to evolve in that direction or we're doomed to either, you know, lose the knowledge and the technology that we have now and just barely be surviving because life finds a way. But, yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, if we're able to, to make another jump in our evolutionary process to where we can overcome some of these, these more, 
you know, base tendencies to, to tribalism and just, you know, we, we have to be inspired by the stories that show a better way forward. You know, that's what we do as writers. We're, we're gaming things yeah. out all the time and, and trying to, to come up with, with different ways of doing it. And let's face it, the way we have been doing it, you know, we're at the end game of that right now. And yeah. these systems aren't necessarily sustainable. So we need to start thinking differently. So yeah. one of the questions I wanted to ask you, um, kind of moving uh, into a different topic a little bit is, how do you approach with your students, specifically ones that are, you know, writers and creatives and whatnot? Um, you know, there's so much misinformation and, and conspiracy theory and stuff. And with the advent of AI, it is just going to blow the doors off everything. Yeah. It's going to be more and more difficult. What do you talk to your students about with that, with how to, to, to recognize it and, and, you know, ways to counteract kind of some of the more negative um, things that come out of misinformation and conspiracy theory. Yeah. And I mean, the unfortunate problem is, is I don't have them long enough to really teach them how to understand what good evidence is, but, but this is, this is why, you know, higher education is, is so important because I, myself, I, I fell into a lot of that conspiracy stuff in my late teens, early twenties. And I swallowed a lot of, a lot of the, the misinformation and garbage in the early internet. And there was some crazy stuff around in the early internet. You know, I'm sure you remember, right? Oh yeah. And it's almost like this double-edged sword where you're, you're trying to be open-minded and, you know, accepting the reality that we, we live in an unlimited universe. We live in possible multiverse. Why, why couldn't it be? Um, But, you know, it it also has become weaponized and has become destructive. So I I often describe myself as a conspiracy addict, you know, Mm. much like heroin, you know, I, I do think about it and I'm always, you know, a good conspiracy theory will grab my attention, but, you know, I, I now have the time in, in play to realize that, you know, going down those deeper rabbit holes can have, you know, negative damaging effects. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, of course, I tell them to, to take a look at multiple objective sources, sources from different perspectives. You know, if they're going to be watching media, they should always be watching in numerous different points of view. Right. Not just one or two. Don't just get stuck. You know, and, and there's some places that are better than others. NPR, for example, is better on average. It's not perfect. It's got its own problems. But at least, you know, they'll bring on something, someone who's conservative and grill them. Then they'll turn around and bring someone on who's liberal and then grill them. Right. And, and that's and I always tell them, look for the journalists who grill everybody. That's the person you want to talk to, not the person who brings someone on for character assassination, uh, you know, because they disagree with their viewpoints. Look at for someone who is is going to ask the tough questions to literally everybody who comes on their show. Right. And this is why, like people like Joe Rogan are such a, a virus. You know, I am not a fan of Joe Rogan. Now, some people listen to this might be. But the reason he is, he does not ask good critical questions. He lets the speaker run their mouth for literally hours without any real critical question. Every once in a while, he'll ask something critical, but the guy's kind of a meathead. He doesn't really, he doesn't have a critical thinking bone in his body. I always joke, like, you know, people don't know who, where, like his origins, like, you know, the news radio show, you know, where he was like this comedic relief with this, this crazy mechanics conspiracy nut. I mean, that's literally his personality. That's what he's like. Yeah. Fear factor. And that was after, but but news, but anyway, he was on a comedy show and that was his personality. But the point is, is like, that's why Joe Rogan's channel is so problematic. Like, yes, he'll have on a wide variety of people to talk about a wide variety of issues, 
but he does not ask good questions. He doesn't know how. So if you want good sources, find people who know to ask really good critical questions, who will push the envelope, because that's what you want your journalism to be. Your journalism, like the ethics of journalism is not to side with anybody. It is to hold those in power accountable, whatever that power looks like, whether it be corporate power or political power, or even just like, you know, status quo power, right? If you're, if you're a member of the status quo, you've got to be held accountable for your actions too. Let me ask you this. Have you watched the, uh, the new AI uh, movie? It just came out on digital today. It's um, the creator. Have you seen that yet? No, I haven't. I haven't seen Uh, that yet. Well, we'll have to wait till you you see it because I want to I want to discuss it a little bit with you. Yeah, yeah, I, and I do think the AI question is a really tough one, and I don't know how we're going to handle that. But I will say, I think what may end up happening, at least for a period of time, is just like constant distrust. Because if you can create anything, I mean, how can you trust anything you see? And in some ways. If AI gets, and maybe it would actually be beneficial for people to put out a whole bunch of fake stuff about everybody, right? Because then people are going to have to have to confront the fact that, you know, I mean, and by the way, like this isn't a new problem. I mean, misinformation with once Photoshop and other tools like that, where you can alter, alter content. So, you know, and CGI and all kinds of stuff, that stuff has, has been causing problems for years and years already. And and I think I think what's what the AI is is coming to such complexity now, it's going to force us to deal with it. Well, you know, it, I think I think the the genie's out of the bottle there. I actually had a conversation about this with one of my agents today, who's mm-hmm. in the publishing fields, and um, you know, it it really it's out of the bottle. It's no going back. There's just way too much yeah. money to pay for it. But here's the deal: like I'm I'm not a rich writer. You know, I'm doing better than right. I ever have. But you know, we're all struggling. We're all starving artists just a life we've chosen, but it, I, I really kind of, I wanted to, for myself, find out, all right, what is this all about? Um, mm-hmm. And started playing with chat GPT back at chat GPT three, I think. And now it's up to, to four and they just did a new release with like, like a creative writing outlet. And it, I, I liken it to like the, when I was in high school, you know, you had the big scientific calculator and mm-hmm. you always had the teachers, well, you're not going to have a calculator in life. Well, that's bullshit. We all know that like, Mm-hmm. whatever job you're at like they really don't care if you use a calculator right uh, it's a tool and it's a tool that is so powerful like as a poor writer i can take something i'm working on and just get editorial advice mm-hmm. on you know flow and and dialogue and whatever it may be and it's it's yeah. like having the the world's smartest creative writing professor right there that i can ask 24 hours a day for advice on things um, you know, and I think that the, the creatives who, who embrace it now and really use it to up their game with editing, not with creation, but what I would term as AI assisted as in mm-hmm. performing the role of an editor, you know, giving you yeah. suggestions on things because it does know, um, you know, that I think it can really, it, it, I think your, your, um, hypothesis that we're going to see the more complex storytelling happening is absolutely true and i mm-hmm. think ai is just going to blow that out of the water even more so but i think i don't know at this point i'm almost seeing ai as part of our species evolution that you know yeah we, we we've grown yeah. smart enough to create these things that are 
you know, super smart and can process just at, at a, an astounding level, just things we couldn't ever think to do. Um, but it also doesn't have human experience, you know? So yeah, I, I think it, it also it as doesn't a tool to, to do the storytelling um, with real information with, you know, yes, everyone's scared. It's going to be weaponized and it already has been, mm-hmm. but the yeah. inoculation of that, I think is good creatives, good storytellers, using it to further their own storytelling abilities and and you know the 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 messages they want to plant into the future you know the good ones on on human rights and equality and you know all the things that we write about to try to make a difference um i think it's going to help us do that in a more efficient way especially you know just starting out when we don't have access to you know high-end editors and you know right it's i i see it as a tool anyway yeah, and and I've used Pro Writing Aid for years. You know, for the last five years, I've been using using Pro Writing Aid, and and Pro Writing Aid does that. It says, "Hey, this sentence is kind of wonky. You might want to look at that, right?" And it's helpful. It's it's helpful to use the tool in that way to think, "Oh, right now, I don't use it as much as I used to because I write so consistently now that I kind of have a lot of those ideas in my head." And and then also, of course, it's still a standardized model, right? It, the AI is not going to give the AI is going to give you the average human experience. It's not going to give you anything remarkable, and that might change in another decade or so as the tools improve. But but you know, if you're writing a, a paragraph, it's going to make you some recommendations when you're going through the editing tools. Like Grammarly is another one, right? And and I and I use Grammarly yeah, that, because that's what I use every day. Yeah, I, I right. Then... Yeah, Pro Writing Aid is just another version of Grammarly. I got it super cheap when it was when it was first out, and so I just bought the lifetime membership. So that's why I mostly use that one. But um, but I use that in Right before I'm going to put something through beta draft, I use that to make a look to make sure that my my language isn't really strange or awkward because sometimes, you know, you write weird sentences because you and you've looked at it so many damn times you can't see your own mistakes. And so, so yeah, these these things are great tools. And, um, you know, and, and I, I grew up on Star Trek, too, by the way, it was like we would watch we would watch episodes of The Next Generation. And then when I was a little older, Voyager together as a family. Yeah, sometimes. no, I did, too. Yeah. So, so, you know, and I always think of the holodeck. Well, it's, it's like, you know, are we going to get to the point where we have a holodeck and, you know, and you think about it, I mean, in Star Trek Deep Space Nine, you still have writers. One of the character wants to be a writer. You know, art gets more complicated. There's different mediums now, right? And I don't know. I'm not necessarily opposed to AI. I, I am opposed to a lot of the people and you'll see people like there's a, a organization like 20 books to 40 to 50k that's really big on facebook and they have conferences in vegas every year one of the founders this isn't all the group by the way one of the founders has decided that he's going to put out like a thousand books in a year and you're just like because he wants to flood the market this is a guy who wants to take control of the publishing market uh you know and he wants to flood the market with all these ai stories and basically i just want to get one or two out in a year yeah like, yeah i know like I just, I, well I and i also to be like not gibberish right and and i spend a lot of time with the artistry of of my writing too where i sit there and study how my favorite authors or classic works of literature how they how they put together storytelling and wording and i, I mean i read so many books all the time just studying how can I make my own artwork better? And that's not something the AI is going to be able to do for quite a while. Now, I'm sure it will be able to do it maybe in another decade. But like, 
you know, so, so for me, I, it's not about the, it's not about the pumping out the books for money. It's about the, the craft itself. And, and I think, and I, that's the weaponized of AI, right? Where you're using it to essentially corner markets and abuse systems so that you amass more power. That's the scary part of AI. And that's what terrifies a lot of these, especially visual artists who suddenly, you know, virtually within the last year have many of them have like had their careers upended because you yeah. have a new tool that makes their their work no longer applicable anymore. And, you know, I still I still like to hire cover art or, or a Duke and I do. I've been doing Photoshop for 10 years so I can do my own a lot of my own cover art stuff, too, and, and my own art, my own digital design. But I will still if I need something more complex than I'm capable of hire a cover designer. But it's like it, it's a really it's a it's a strange place for a, a lot of artists right now. And, and music is the same because you can put in prompts and, and produce music in some cases now, too. So it's a it's a wild world. You know, we, we I, I think and I think the fundamental problem and is not is not the AI. The fundamental problem is is the capitalism. Right. It's, it's the fact that as it is, we're already starving our as it is, we already barely survive. And then suddenly there's these tools that can be used by massive corporations to come along and do and weaponize. But that, I mean, that's, but you can't, you're right. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. So how can we take these tools and use them to improve our own, their own quality of our craft? If it, it, for me, it's as simple as, well, I'm going to have pro writing, pro writing aid proofread my draft before, and then I'm going to do one draft before it goes off to a real editor. Cause I still, I, you know, it, it misses shit all the time. Like yeah. I, I send it to my real editor and there's still plenty of red ink on that page, you know? Well, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think good stories, you know, they rise up above all of the, the chatter and, you know, all the massive influx, a good story, yeah. well-written with a good, you know, human connection. It, it's just going to rise up. So really what I try to do is just improve my craft. Cause I figure yeah. if I just tell better stories, more people are going to engage and you know there's not there's no algorithm out there that's going to beat word of mouth because yeah. it's just the 500 pound gorilla so um yeah it so still let's, is. Let's, let, let's end the the conversation on this um what would you say to young creatives just coming out now about about storytelling and its power its its potential impact to change the world how would you inspire them to, to kind of become the next generation of storytellers that, that, you know, are going to be look, telling the stories that will affect the future. Yeah. I mean, tell your truth, you know, that's, and, and understand that your truth is your truth. It's not a universal truth. Tell the truth. And the truth is ugly. The truth is scary. The truth is complicated. Be honest in your, all of your art, artistic creative endeavors right and on top of that reflect a lot do not try to just churn out a piece of art because you got to meet some quota because you're hoping to like oh if i put out a book a month then i'll sell a whole bunch of stuff or anything like that take time with it good creation takes patience it takes reflection it takes conversations with other artists and work with your community so if you can tell as your truth, your honest truth as best you can, and you can reflect, and then you can integrate with the community, if you can start working with others, you will find that the quality of your artwork will be better, 
and you will touch more people with your work. And, and because let's face it, you know, especially nowadays, there's like a half a million books coming out every year. It's a lottery game. You, you can write a, amazing books and it's still a bit of a lottery. Yeah. So interact with your community. You have to be community oriented for this stuff to really have meaning. And if you look at all the great, greatest artists in history, there were many of them, not all, but many of them were deeply community oriented where they, they reflect, you know, they would go out and they would try new things. And, and, and remember, this is play, play with your truth, play with your ideas, play with that reflection. Don't allow yourself to take yourself so seriously that every that everything you create is deadly serious and anyone who criticizes it will make you collapse in tears you've got to just you've got to make the work do your best do all those things then let it go because yeah. the world be is going to take fail. whatever you what's that and be prepared to fail i mean you're gonna be fail prepared to fail times. yeah like, that's part of the learning process like you are not going to just knock the ball out of the park the first swing it takes well, yeah. so many yeah. failures to really learn the system. Yeah, absolutely. Expect to fail a lot. The more failing, the better quality of your work later. So the last thing is this. When you do your work and you, you put all of your heart and soul into it, you have to let it go. Because when that work goes out into the world, it's not yours anymore. Yeah, it's not yours it's anymore. So what the world does with that work, how it interprets that work, it does not matter what your intention was. The world is going to deal with it in a way that you do not expect. And I know this scares the shit out of a lot of artists when they suddenly see their work being used, especially for nefarious things, right? And, and yeah. of course, if it's a nefarious thing, certainly say that. But, but what I'm saying is you might have given life to something. And this is the old joke, right? Well, the, the author the author had a red door in this scene because they were symbolizing this. And the author's like, what? What are you talking about? Just a door. I just picked the color, right? But but the reality is our reflection and interpretation of that art is part of the art itself. Art is community. It's absolutely community. And without the community, what's the point? Without the sharing, without the, the experience. So, so if you're an artist, if you're a musician, go to lots of performances. That's probably a given with musicians, right? That, that usually is. But if you're a poet, go to open mics and share your stuff and listen to others. If you're an author, go to reading events. Um, you know, if you're a painter, go, go, to, you know, go to places where people are, are working together on, on projects. Be community oriented because if you want to, you, you, odds are most of us will not change the game or change the world. But if we can change a few people in our community around us, that that matters. Yeah, it's a good start anyway. It is. All right. Well, Michael, thanks so much again for taking the time out of your day to, to come on and uh, talk with me about the creative process and, and storytelling. It's always a, a great conversation. And uh, where can people find your work? If they want to connect with you, if they want to read more of your what you do, um, where can they do that? So the, the, the two major places is my website, uh, LeridiansLaboratory.com. Uh, and then the other one is my Substack, which, you know, we'll, we'll be linking up here. Uh, the Substack is where you get all the big news. The website is much, much more of the whenever I have any kind of announcement or anything. So, um, but those are the two main 
paces. I also do run a YouTube channel, although I don't put a whole lot of content up all the time. Uh, so you can search for me, Michael Kilman on YouTube. I pop right up. I have a YouTube series called Anthropology in 10 or Less. I have some of my fiction on there, all kinds of stuff. So see, I, I, honestly, if you Google my name, you'll find me all over the place. I'm, I'm not hard to find. All right. All right. Is there anything else you want to add we haven't touched on? No, I don't think so. I just, you know, good luck creating and, and your stories matter, everyone. Like really, they do matter. Your truth matters. Doesn't mean that it matters for everybody, but it matters to some people. All right. Thanks, Michael. All right, folks. That's it for this week's podcast. If you haven't yet just gone out and bought one of my books, like go do it. Help support a local author as he tries to navigate the world, you know, raising his two teenage daughters that are still left in the house um, through creative means. All right, folks. Well, I hope you have a good Thanksgiving. I don't know if I, I might do a podcast next week, holiday special, maybe. I don't know. Maybe not. Anyway, if I don't, I hope you have just a wonderful Thanksgiving with you and your family. Take the moment to reach out to crazy Uncle Bob when he starts going off about crazy information just ask him Uncle Bob, what's going on in your life are you are you doing okay is there something i can do to to help out it's the little things um in our own spheres that are going to make the real difference so all right folks that's it that's all i gotta say happy thanksgiving uh maybe i'll see you at my author's dinner next month in a couple weeks and uh you know stay classy colorado stay classy You've been listening to the Colorado Switchblade. I'm Jason Van Tatenhove.